Alex Berlin. Deine Stadt, dein Programm. Welcome back to Burlesque on Air with the naughtiest Friday night of the month on Alex Radio. Like every month, we will be interviewing a burlesque legend. Yes, those ladies. And you will see there's a twist tonight. <laughs> who have made a history of live entertainment back in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Yes, Burlesque on Air finds them. They live far, far away in the wild lands of the United States. <laughs> We found their phone numbers and you will find with us the stories of their life. As I said, tonight there is a twist. Yes, because we won't have, as usually, a lady in the show. We will have a boy. We have Big Carol, a true legend of burlesque, what is considered to be one of the first, if not the first male stripper in the history of this art form. <laughs> He had an amazing story. He started at the age of 17, coming out from his farm. Yes, he was a farm boy, a little naughty, so innocent farm boy. <laughs> And he started discovering the nightlife, working as a performer and as a choreographer. At the age of 20, he became a father of a young little child who wasn't really wanted by the mom and he didn't want to give up on him. And that's why he took care of his baby in the backstages of the <laughs> burlesque cabarets, theaters and clubs. <laughs> And um, because the child welfare wanted to take the, would have probably taken away the child from uh, Big Carol, he decided to move to Paris to escape with his baby. And that's where the doors of uh, glitz and glamour opened to him. And the rest of the story, you will hear it tonight. Big Carol is going to be on the phone with us for one hour sharing his story so i will uh, let you enjoy a little a musical break while you dream about this young innocent farm boy and let's discover together what he became afterwards he is today 81 years old yes <laughs> he is still full of life and uh, in the meantime while you're listening to the music connect to your uh, uh, mobile devices to your computer like our facebook page facebook.com slash air and do not forget to subscribe our podcast on itunes burlesque on air with lada red star see you in a few minutes with big carol sous le ciel de Paris s'envole une chanson Elle est née d'aujourd'hui dans le cœur d'un garçon Sous le ciel de Paris marchent des amoureux Leur bonheur se construit sur un air fait pour eux Sous le pont de Bercy, un philosophe assis, de musiciens, quelques badauds, puis des gens par milliers. 
Le ciel de Paris jusqu'au soir vont chanter L'hymne d'un peuple épris de sa vieille cité Près de Notre-Dame Parfois couvre un drame Qui met à Paname Tout peut s'arranger Quelques rayons du ciel d'été L'accordéon d'un marinier L'espoir fleurit Au ciel de Paris Sous le ciel de Paris Coule un fleuve joyeux mmh. Il endort dans la nuit Les clochards et les gueux Le ciel de Paris, les oiseaux du bon Dieu Viennent du monde entier pour bavarder entre eux Et le ciel de Paris a son secret pour lui Depuis vingt siècles, il était pris de notre île Saint-Louis Quand elle lui il met son habit bleu Quand il pleut sur Paris C'est qu'il est malheureux Quand il est trop jaloux De ses millions d'amants Il fait gronder sur eux Son tonnerre éclatant Mais le ciel de Paris n'est pour se faire pardonner, il offre un Hello, Big Carol, a big hello from Germany, and welcome to Burlesque on Air. <laughs> oh, I am so excited to have you in this radio show. And after Neil Kendall, you are the first boy to be on Burlesque on Air. We've so far interviewed so many ladies, but it's true that the masculine sex is not so present. <laughs> <laughs> Especially back in the days, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> so let's start. Old man, you know. <laughs> what can I say? Oh, but you look so young. <laughs> well, I'm going to be 80 in just a, a little while. Also. Oh, congratulations to that because your spirit is the spirit of a 20 years old. You keep us. <laughs> Young burlesque performers still entertained nowadays. You give us so yeah. much inspiration. You have so many stories to share with us that, I mean, you are just such an important presence in the burlesque community. Well, I've been in the burlesque community a long, long time. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Let's talk about a long time ago when a young farm boy aged 17 that wanted to escape the reality of your of her his surroundings became 
one of the first male strippers, or what you prefer being called, exotic performer. How did it happen? Okay, I came from a very abusive family. My mm. mother had died when I was seven, and my parents were divorced very young, so mm. I didn't know my father. When my mother died, my grandparents raised me, and my mm. grandfather was a very abusive man. Mm. So I kind of escaped my world. I taught myself acrobatics because I really wanted to be a trapeze artist. So I taught myself, you know, from looking at movies and pictures, and um, I, uh, the local dance school hired me to help teach the acrobatics. In exchange, I got to take all the dance classes that I wanted. At 14, my grandparents let me go for the summer with the circus and uh, because I thought I wanted to be a trapeze artist. There was only one problem. The first time I climbed up the ladder, you know, to the trapeze rigging, I found out I was afraid of heights. So there went the career as a trapeze artist. Right? <laughs> now, <laughs> I had a friend whose father owned a bookstore, and they used to keep the dirty magazines under the counter. And I found a magazine called Cabaret, and I think I was 16 at the time, <laughs> called Cabaret. And uh, it was about nightclubs. And I saw a story in there about two people I wanted to meet. One was uh, Tony the Knight, the costumer, who took me under his wing and taught me the costume business, and a man named Kim On Wong. Kim On Wong was from China, and he was a wonderful modern dancer but he couldn't make a living. So he taught strippers. And I got on the train and I went to see him. So I made a deal with my high school that one day a week I could go into Chicago on the train and take his classes you know, for further education. And they were very dumb, they did agree to it. Well, it was because of Kim, that's where I first met strippers. He got me the job in Calumet City, okay? And this whole thing was just to escape my background. And, yeah. uh, because I really believed that everything happened that happened in the movies was real. My father looked just like an actor named Dan Daly, who was in musicals, old MGM musicals. He was in no business like show business. And I really believed he was my father, and that one day he would come and get me and take me back to Hollywood. So I better learn how to sing and dance and be ready. And um, do you remember the moment when you first saw a stripper, a lady on stage and you as this young boy? How did you feel? And do you maybe even remember who was that? Okay, I got hired by the Riptide to mm -hmm. choreograph the chorus live. Mm -hmm. Because the girls that were mixing, you know, drinking with the customers, they had to be in the show. Because if they weren't, they could be arrested for being on the premises. And I had never seen a stripper. I had no idea for sure what they really did <laughs> until I went to the Riptide. Uh, and when I choreographed my first chorus line number for them, the wardrobe lady asked me what my favorite color was. This is a true story. And I said, pink. Uh, so I came in to see the show that night, and when the chorus line came on, 
They had pink high heels, a pink G-string, and a pink feather in their hair, and that was all. My beautiful uh, choreography, nobody paid any attention to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that I know all the secrets of your youth, we can go to Paris, we can go to the... Uh, uh, how did you continue your career? And so not only you were a performer, but you were also a choreographer and also a costumeer. So you were making costumes and you developed your career in so many different fields and ways and uh, you had such a great reputation. You were so loved by everyone. So I should jump now to uh, how I left Paris and Hamburg. Okay, yes. Uh, Lou Walters, who was Barbara Walters' father, by the way, Barbara Walters, during rehearsals in New York, used to babysit my son. He came to Paris, and he saw me, and he said, look, I would like to come, you know, you to come to New York. And the Latin Quarter was one of the most famous nightclubs in the United States. And I said, and doing what? And he said, well, I'll tell you. The New York boy dancers won't wear a G-string. And you're totally nude, so it shouldn't bother you. So he said, I'll make a deal. I'll protect you that nobody will bother you with their son. So I said, all right. So I got rid of the snakes and came back to the United States and went to the, into the Latin Quarter as the featured dancer. Because, as he had said, no boy dancers in New York would, you know, would work that naked. And he wanted that in his show. So in the daytime... Uh, I went and worked in their costume shop, which were all ladies from Paris, who taught me different types of costuming. So when the Latin Quarter was going to close a year and a half later, Mr. Walter said to me, you're not the best-looking boy in the world, you're not the best dancer in the world, but you have an innocent you know, boy look about you. Put four <laughs> girls behind you, and you'll always have a job. And that's what I did. I went and got myself four girls, and the ladies at the Latin Quarter helped me make the costumes. And what they would do is anything that fell on the floor was Vicks for Vicks show. So when they were working on rhinestones, they would go, oops, there went five gross rhinestones on the floor. You know, get a broom, Vic. You know, and I'd get a broom, and they were mine. Okay, and any feathers that fell on the floor, they were mine. Okay, so when I put my first act together at the end of the Latin Quarter, I had the most beautiful costumes of any group in the United States because <laughs> I knew that Paris kind of flair, you know. Yes. So we started, we started opening for comics. You know, we'd do twenty minutes in the Catskills. We'd be the opening act for comics, and we were all of a sudden in great demand. Right? And I had always known that. And I give this advice to male singers and dancers, you know, now. Forget it. You really want to make money for beautiful girls in beautiful costumes behind you. You'll always have a job. <laughs> well, that seemed to work quite well. <laughs> well, you know, I learned to sing. And from burlesque, I learned to do comedy. Yeah, exactly. I worked with all the comedians. I worked with Red Fox, you know, and a lot of people. So anyway, for a couple of years, we just did the short act. And then people kept saying, well, you have to elaborate this. So we got a contract with the Playboy Clubs for three years, mm -hmm. playing 26 different nightclubs in the United States. Mm -hmm. So 
I said, how am I going to kill an hour? And I went to Red Fox, and Red said to me, well, you know, you know comedy. You know, you sing. So just talk to the audience, because I don't tell jokes. I just talk to the audience. And that's what I did, and that's what developed the shows. And they went from six girls up to having 20 girls. <laughs> so, and you see, when there wasn't any work, if I had a couple of months free, mm -hmm. I would go get two more snakes, and I'd go back to smaller clubs um, and do the snake burlesque act just to keep making money, you know. So how did you develop your style? Because, of course, you saw female burlesque performers, but obviously there is... Um, a difference between the masculine styles from the classic feminine movements. So you have to develop a very, very different style for you and a style that had to be unique to you. And also you didn't have so many role models or someone to see how could you do that. So you had to make it up for yourself and maybe make some mistakes and figure out the right way to do it. So how did you develop your style? All right. Uh, you know, I'm considered to be the first American male stripper. Mm -hmm. But I really was a stripper. Most of my training was either in Afro-Cuban or in Oriental styles of dance. And that's what I used. And I thought, what is erotic? And I thought, erotic is like looking through a keyhole that you're not supposed to look like. <laughs> so I always made the stage totally blue. And I worked in a circle on the floor. And I never looked at the audience. And my attitude is I wanted the audience to feel that they wanted to jump on the stage and rip my clothes off and rape me. <laughs> and, you know, and so that was the attitude. Because, you know, everybody has fantasies. Mm -hmm. And when you have a 20-year-old body, you know, this innocent look. I really was very innocent. And that <laughs> look about you. And they feel they are looking at something they're not supposed to look at. Mm. And my act was basically the snakes making love to me. Mm -hmm. right? And that's why I was successful. Because I didn't try to copy the girls. And I didn't get hecklers because people were afraid of the snakes. If you said something to me while I was on stage, I'd walk off and hand you a 12-foot boa constrictor and say, would you mind taking care of this for a little while? And I'd go on with the act. Well, they'd shut up really quick. All right. So... Let's go on with your life with Paris and how did you start a choreographing show and producing show? How would you choose your dancers and how would you choose your girls? Okay, all right. I never chose girls that by how well they danced. No. <laughs> I chose girls by their beauty. And uh, I had worked for a guy and, and the girls wanted a number where they really, really danced. And so I choreographed them a number where they really, really danced. And the club owner came in and called me in the office, and he said, I want you to take that number out of your show. And I said, why? It's a great dance number. And he said, no, I saw a drop of sweat fly off one of your girls. Ooh. My audience doesn't come to see sweat. I'd rather they walked around the stage and were beautiful. This is not a ballet. Uh, this is cabaret. So that was a, a very important lesson, you know, because women are beautiful, like, you know, Zigfield, you know, glorified. 
by the American girl. Mm -hmm. That was kind of what I was looking for. I didn't care. I wanted beautiful ladies that were almost untouchable. Uh, my girls came from all over the world. Right. You know, I spent six years, you know, playing Japan and all the Far East. So I knew what they wanted. Uh, so that's what I gave them. Wow. But you see, I was very lucky in my youth because I was able to study with people like Bob Fosse. Wow. Uh, you know, a lot of big Broadway choreographers. So wow. and it was really funny because I was so young and dumb right, that so many people took me under their wing, especially in nightclubs and cabarets, because they went, okay, we're going to show you what the nightclub business is about you know, before it dies, you know, and uh, it was so wonderful. It was a wonderful training ground that is not available anymore. And so you, you told me that you have many, many shows with your girls, but one of the uh, funny stories when, when you took your girls to dance in the front lines of the Korean War, and I know something very, very special happened. <laughs> We are the first topless dancing show to ever play Korea. And at the Sheraton Walker Hill Hotel in Seoul. Well, it was Christmas time, and I get a call from uh, Bob Hope's agent. And Mr. Hope was supposed to do the Christmas entertainment for the troops at the, at the Korean border. Mm -hmm. And he was sick, and he could not do it. So the agent said, Mick, uh, could you and your girls go do a show for the servicemen? Sure, why not? Okay. Mm -hmm. So we arranged it with the 8th Army, and uh, I took my girls on the bus up to the border, and it was snowing. And when we got there, we performed on the back of a truck, a flat truck. <laughs> and the lights, the lights were from the jeeps and military vehicles that they could park and shine to the stage. In the, they were, we did two shows for them that day. They were sitting on the tarmac of the airport when the lights came up and they saw 12 girls in all these feathers and rhinestone bikinis. They started screaming so loud that the North Koreans couldn't figure out what it was. And so the war stopped for about 20 minutes because the North Koreans couldn't figure out what all this noise was. <laughs> They thought it was the end of the world, right? <laughs> These guys and girls, uh, 5,000 of them, we entertained that day. <laughs> and uh, they, it was just seeing these beautiful girls in these beautiful feathers, uh, that made their day. And my girls stood around for another four hours in the snow in those costumes wow. so the boys could get their picture taken with them. Wow. <laughs> which I still have, gave me this big plaque thanking me. All right. <laughs> they said it was better than having Bob Hope. And even Bob Hope, which I still have, sent me a letter thanking me. So it was a great pleasure. <laughs> so can you imagine how naked girls are so much more of an energy boost for the troops than anything else, <laughs> any political speech, any motivation exactly. speech, just give them naked ladies. <laughs> well, it, exactly. You know, and I always was very careful with hiring girls 
I wanted you to be a gypsy at heart. So if I said, okay, next week we're going to Timbuktu, all right, they'd say, okay, let's go, all right. I, I didn't allow any divas. I wanted you to be a true gypsy because I felt you're getting to travel around the world and I'm paying you to do it, you know, so you better enjoy. I had one girl that was with me for 12 years. She mm. lives right around the corner now from where I live. Wow. And, and I kept saying, why did you stay with me for so long? And she said, it was like going on a world tour, and you paid me. <laughs> so she said, you know, I would have done it for half the money. So, but, you know, some, I'll tell you a wonderful story, you know. Yeah, My tell son, us. when he was 13, decided that daddy was robbing him of his childhood. So he wanted to come back to the United States, and he was going to stay with his grandparents. So the first day, he... Uh, he went back to school, high school, in Indianapolis, Indiana. So I stayed the first week with him. I thought, well, maybe I am being a bad father by not letting him be the all-American boy. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, the second or third day he was in high school, the high school called, and uh, they said, you have to come down here. There's a problem with your son. So I went down to the high school, and I said, what's the problem? He corrected the Spanish teacher. He said, Dad... He said, you know, she used a word, and I told her it means something different in Puerto Rico. It means something different in Mexico. It means something different you know, in Brazil. And I said, it's a colloquialism, okay? And I asked the Spanish teacher, uh, how many Spanish-speaking countries have you lived in? And she said, oh, I never have. I just graduated from college. And I said, well, my son has lived in at least six. All right. So that was okay, you know. So about two days later, we get another call. Now it's the school saying, you have to come down here. I said, what have you done now, Pete? And so I get down and he said, Dad, I didn't do anything. They were talking about the Eiffel Tower. And I told him it really didn't look like the pictures. It was really this rusty old piece of junk, right, in the middle of the street. And I said, well, okay. You know, and I said, yes, my son has been to the Eiffel Tower many, many times. Uh. And then he said, and then they were talking about the Sphinx, you know, in Cairo. And I told him I slept at the foot of the Sphinx. And they called me a liar. <gasps> so I sat down and I, with a geography teacher. I said, I'm going to tell you something. I deliberately took my son when we were playing Cairo to the Sphinx. I put him at the foot of the Sphinx and he fell asleep. And I have photographs to prove it. <laughs> so my son has been in 26 different countries. He speaks 13 languages because I always had a nanny for him, you know, and I wanted him to learn the languages. I said, you know something? We have a problem here because European education he was about three years more advanced than they were from the United States. <laughs> so it took him a very long time to adjust, you know, to American life. He had never, he's 13 years old. He had never had a hamburger in his life. Oh. He didn't know what that was. Right? And he could not believe that Americans would eat hot dogs. <laughs> he thought that was disgusting. <laughs> so... But for him, it was no, he never ate a hot dog, but he saw snakes, he saw ladies, he saw the world, he saw soldiers, he saw <laughs> everything else well, was normal, but the hot dogs weren't. <laughs> well, you see, when he came to America, they had never experienced 
a child who had had that many experiences. <laughs> so they really didn't believe him. You know, and I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you the scrapbooks, Pete. And when they do that, you just take the scrapbooks and you show them. He said, Daddy, I can't. Half the girls are naked. Uh, I said, well, maybe they'll enjoy that. And so, <laughs> you know, get in the wing. And I said, did you enjoy the show? And he said, yeah, but, you know, the third girl over there, you know, her tits are bigger than the girl next to her. You got to switch them around. <laughs> oh, he had the eye, huh? <laughs> well, that's how he grew up, you know. <laughs> so, can you imagine having a dressing room of burlesque queens as your aunties and your mothers and your sisters, you know? <laughs> he, at Christmas time, he used to get so many gifts that he couldn't take them. <laughs> I will tell you a true story on that subject. He was the mascot. There was, a club in, there was a club in Pittsburgh called the Sky Room. And they used to book me every year at Christmas time. And I hated this club. <laughs> it was right out at the airport. And, and you'd be right in the middle of the show and the airplanes would go off. And every year I'd go, I'm never going to work here again. And they would offer me more money and more money. I was making like five times my normal amount. you know. But it was just for four weeks at Christmas time. Then finally I said to the owner, why do you keep booking me? You don't like me. All right? He said, no, I don't like you at all. He said, but I've got to tell you something. I used to let my son go stay with his mother, a little old Italian lady. Okay. You'd see the two of them, You'd see the two of them in the morning walking hand in hand, you know, her in her little black dress and him in his suit going to church. And he said, you know, my mother has no grandchildren, and she actually owns this nightclub. And she told me, if I don't have Vic Carroll's son here at Christmas time, for her to have a nice Christmas, a little boy to take care of, go to church with, she's going to sell the nightclub. That's why My son got me a lot of bookings because people, it's very funny. You know, I have a strong mafia background, and people always ask why. Because they protected me. Because they so respected an Italian boy with a single father. Oh. There was a single father whose yeah. son came before anything and would do anything, you know, for his son. Oh. So they protected me, and they so respected me and made sure nothing happened to me made sure I always made money. And uh, so you started talking about the mob, and I know that at Berlicon you had a speech about burlesque and the mob. So I wanted to open this chapter a little bit, because we talked about it already with April March, of course. And it's very interesting how the mob was so much involved in the cabaret and the burlesque scene. And uh, so I would really, really love you to tell us more about it. It's such an interesting part of the burlesque history, this connection that uh, it had with the mob, with the mafia. <laughs> okay, You have to understand, first of all, that the mafia controlled all the nightclubs and the liquor industry. Mm -hmm. They also were the only people that had enough money to pay off the police so that the police didn't raid the nightclubs. And you either worked for them or you didn't work. But the advantage was working for them. You were always protected and you always got your money. There, you couldn't, there was nowhere else to work in the cabaret business, not only in burlesque, but all the cabaret industry. I always liked working for them because they protected me. I was, um, you know, I, they made, I made great money with them. And they were my people, okay? 
you know, and uh, being Italian, you know, they just, they would be so amazed, right, that I would insist my son be backstage. I would insist, you know, on all these things. And I remember one guy said to me, you never ask for anything for yourself. You always ask for stuff for your son. And I said, well, that's, that's why I'm here, you know, and... Um, but if I if I hadn't had my son to take care, I probably would not have done some of the things I did. Really? Yeah. Like which ones? Yeah. What do you think that you would you would have done I differently? Would work anywhere. I mean, I would work anywhere that was going to pay me. Mm -hmm. You know, and I worked fifty two weeks a year. I didn't care. I worked county fairs. I worked carnivals. You know, Val Valentine and I. You know, and. Uh, Danny, Annie, we all go back to the carnival days. That's how we know yeah. each other. Val Valentine so, was in our was the guest of our previous episode, so we sent her a big hug and a big hello again from Burlesque on Air. She's oh, she, such a sweetheart. She's a sweetheart. I mean, you know, the true legends don't have any any hero. Mm -hmm. Okay, it was not an easy business. No. These were dumps, you know, dirty clubs that we played and. Some of the things they expected from us, you know, mixing with the audience and hustling drinks and everything else, I personally didn't care. Because when I walked out of the club at the end of the night, then I went back to my life. Mm -hmm. When I walked in the club, I was whatever you were paying me to be, mm -hmm. you know. And April could tell you some wonderful stories about the 606 Club in Chicago, you know, and uh, back in the 50s. I've known April, oh my God, for some years. <laughs> oh, Carol, I am but a fool. Darling, I love you. Though you treat me cruel.
must have been so many crazy stories. What is? Uh, do Do you remember a really really crazy backstage or club anecdote? Something really funny that you still remember now today? Well, I remember being in police raids and going to jail. What? People that, you know, you couldn't do what you do now. We're the people that went to jail for you, you know, and um, <laughs> they used to call it indecent exposure. One time I went, the judge refused to believe that I did such a, a raunchy act. All right, and I said, Judge, I don't take my clothes off on stage. The states do it, okay? <laughs> because when it came down to the G string, I would slide the head of the snake in the G string and lower the snake. All right, and the weight of the snake would pull the G-string off my body. I never took the G-string off. The snakes did it. And uh, so the judge said, uh, well, what do you mean? And I said, here, judge, let me show you. And I reached in a bag I brought, and I brought a small boa constrictor, only 10 feet, and I handed it to him, all right? And he screamed, and he said, get him out of court. I never want to see him again. <laughs> you could get arrested for. They would yeah. make up, see, they had some strange laws. In Pittsburgh, you could not touch your body. Okay. Uh, <laughs> once you had taken the outer garment off, if you were just in a, something very brief, you could not touch your body whatsoever. When I first came to Las Vegas, this went for men as well as women, you could not have one visible hair on your body except what was on your head. Wow. Which means even the normal had to be totally shaved, you know, anything that might possibly, your chest, under your arms, everything. And there was a law up here that the side of your G-string had to be at least one inch wide. And they would come in and measure just to make sure. If it was three quarters of an inch, you could go to jail. Being very young and very innocent looking, you know, um, I just played it really stupid. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know about that, you know. <laughs> and uh, I would get away with it because I would just play dumb. And that night, I'd go right back to the club and do the same damn thing, so it didn't make any difference to me. <laughs> naughty, <laughs> naughty, big. <laughs> All right. So did you had your uh, choreographer and costume career at the same time and performing as well at the same time. We also know that yeah. you won two times the Las Vegas Costume of the Year Award. Oh, oh, oh. So it's an amazing okay. thing. You see, here's what happened. I could not ever afford to hire people to do things. <laughs> uh, when I put my first act together, I went to a, a woman named Madame Bertha, mm -hmm. who is a very renowned costumer in New York. And I wanted these costumes made. And she said, $250 a costume. I said, okay, I can swing $250 a costume. When I came to get them, they were $2,500 a costume. Whoa. So I went, I can, no, can't do this. Absolutely can't do this. 
So from what I had learned in the burlesque world and what I had learned at the Latin Quarter, you know, I started making all my own costumes. And uh, being a trained dancer, I knew more about how to present girls than most choreographers. Mm-hmm. Each meant to dance and want to be choreographers. I make them take the heels so they know what a girl feels like to step in a pair of heels. Mm-hmm. It's a lot different than doing it in a pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. We were signed, we had played this place in Palm Springs, California, which was the hills that had over me all the money. They were for every year for quite a few years. And we were on our way, and we decided to stop in Vegas for a few days. Well, the producers of the Flamingo Hotel had seen some of my costumes on some friends of mine. I would costume for friends. They said to me, how the costume our next show? And I said, no, I'm not that good. And so anyway, um, said, oh, we just love your stuff. And my partner at the time said to me, we can take the show to Palm Springs. All right, why don't you go and do this? You're better than you think you are. And I said, no, 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 I'm not that good. And they said, no, try it. They're paying you a lot of money. If you can't do it, hey, you got half the money up front. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. So I costumed their show. And when the reviews came out in Las Vegas, the headline was, this is the only show in Vegas you come out whistling the costumes. <laughs> and that's when I won the first time customer of the year. <gasps> And the second, over Bob Mackey, by the way. And the second time was I had costumed Siegfried and Roy mm-hmm. at the Starless Hotel. So that's when I won again. So that was a whole new career. I actually never realized I could get paid for making costumes. Yeah. So what was the secret of your costume and style? Like, what? Uh, how, why were they so particular, your costumes? What, what, what they had oh so God. special? Okay, Tony Midnight had taught me to use uh, a sequin machine, and there were very, very few of them in the United States. They came from Paris. Um, so my costumes were covered in beautiful, elaborate sequin designs mm. that you only found in Paris. Uh, nobody else in the United States. And at the time, I was considered by the Union one of three master embroiderers. So I, Tony had taught me so many things about the machines. And um, so when I bought my own, it was just experimentation, experimentation. And sequins were cheap, okay? And they traveled well. <laughs> so uh, that was kind of my trademark. Mm-hmm. Everything was just covered in sequins and feathers. <laughs> and I learned to dye feathers. I wanted to learn how to dye feathers at these companies, dye companies. And a little lady called me. My father was a head dyer at MGM and he would die soon and he would like to teach you. So I'm Los Angeles and for two weeks, this little old man, the head dyer at MGM, taught me how to dye feather and fabrics, you know, and be, he wanted someone to learn how to do it before he died so he could pass it on. And so that was another trademark. <laughs> and you see, with my shows, every, we carried two totally different shows. So the first show was different from the second. And we did a new show every year. And can you believe that the last show, for example, of the Moulin Rouge, Les, Les Féeries, it's been going on, I think, for 17 years or even more now. So and and back in the days you would create a new review a new show every every year it's 
the the budgets i mean i mean and the you know and the extravagance that was put in it and the energies that was put in it was something like out of this world for the you know for 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 nowadays ideas of shows you can't do it nowadays because the, the money the cost of things are so outrageous yeah. plus the two feather companies in paris that used to do all the plumage they have both gone out of business exactly there are no tradesmen anymore that know how to do these things because people don't want to apprentice you know, if they can't learn to do it in one day, they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. In my day, you worked for free, you apprenticed, you learned what you could, you know, and then you took that knowledge. Mm-hmm. But financially, uh, you can't afford to go out and hire people to do all these things. In my day, because I did it all myself, you know, I could do it. And traveling the world, you know, I would find 10 yards of fabric in Paris. I would find you know, um, so many feathers in Brazil. I would find so much silk in China. And so I was looking at beautiful fabrics and mm-hmm. unusual things. See, we couldn't afford rhinestones. Mm-hmm. All right. they, uh, they were a luxury. Uh, outside of the jewelry, you know, most people did not do. But the Moulin Rouge, you could not afford to duplicate that show. Yeah. What do you think is the future of live entertainment? Is there any, is, or is it all slowly dying, or is there hope, and no. where should we look for hope? Okay, you're located where? I'm in Berlin, Germany. Okay, okay. this is a very interesting thing, and I tell all my students that mm-hmm. want to perform this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is more work in Europe right now than there is in the United States. Europe yeah, definitely. a total research of cabaret. Mm-hmm. Everything goes in and out of fashion. And I think, you know, people get bored. Their attention span only lasts for a certain amount of time. Exactly, yes. I think people are getting bored watching television. And I think you will see a resurge of live entertainment. Mm -hmm. Just because it'll, they will, you know, it's like new burlesque. They will look at it, oh, this is wonderful and new. You know, we have invented something. They don't realize it's a recycle. Yeah. All right. Everything goes around in a circle. Mm-hmm. And I think in the next few years, if if I, I get so many offers right now that if I wanted to put a show back together, I could work for the next 10 years in Europe, Australia, <laughs> the Far East. Do it, do it. <laughs> I'm too old now. There's an agent that is really funny from Australia that keeps contacting me. I've known her for years. And she said, Vic. I can keep you working forever. And I said, why? There's so many groups there. <laughs> and she said, no. She said, yours, the costumes, you know, and the way you do a show. How do you present beautiful girls? This is what they want, all right? And I can keep you working. You know? But, you know, I do help other people. It's really cute. I On the Internet, I found this group, mm-hmm. one boy and four girls, and it kind of reminded me of my old act. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this boy, and it was him and his sister had this small little group. And uh, he wrote me back to him, bad English. And he said, oh, we don't make much money because, you know, we don't have beautiful costumes. So I sent him a whole box mm-hmm. of rhinestones and all this junk I had had. I sent him patterns for G-strings and headdresses and bras. And he wrote me back. He said, oh, we made all those things you sent him. He said, guess what? Our money went up three times. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I don't feel you own this knowledge. 
field no. is only yours temporarily. Yeah. And it is your job to pass it on when you're done with it. Yes, and it's so true. And so that's what I try to do at my classes and things. Yeah. So. Well, I woke up in the morning and I looked out the door. I came to tell hello, milk cow. I can tell the way she loves now if you see my milk cow. I eat the rapper off my own home. So you've attended BerlyCon, you attend the Burlesque Hall of Fame. And so how does it feel to still be so adored by the younger generations that are so hungry, as you say, for information, to get this knowledge from you and to be on that stage and being applauded and screamed for by thousands of people in Las Vegas? And I mean, it must be such a big joy not to... I think the strike for every artist is not to be forgotten. For many years, I tried to hide the burlesque background. Mm-hmm. You know, and I wanted to be legitimate. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, so about eight years ago, Scott E. Walt and Brad Flagle kind of outed me as America's first male stripper. And I thought, oh no, why do you stripper? So I said, okay. So I went to my first burlesque call of fame. And it blossomed from there, you know. And I thought, oh, you know, I wanted to hide all that stuff. So, But then I realized that people really wanted to know about these things. And I said, okay, I, you know, I'm 70 years old now. What do I care, you know, and what people say about me? So it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And I love the young people because I want to encourage them. I want them to develop this. All right, I don't want to see it die, okay? And uh, it thrills me to be able to give my knowledge to them. So what is the biggest of advices that you can get for the performers today? Keep on laughing. <laughs> do not allow do not allow anyone to hurt you or be harmful to you. Mm-hmm. If uh, that is going to happen, turn your back and walk away. It makes you the better person. So, and also what I like about uh, your advices is that they are quite unconventional. I mean, I guess there were maybe not so many people who can agree with you with saying, oh, it doesn't matter of how good of a dancer you are. You just need to look great on stage. And then, you know, another statement that you gave was, it doesn't matter what you do on stage as long as you look fabulous. So that was about your costumes and so on. So maybe like professional dancers wouldn't really agree on you. But I like this vision that 
that you have of live entertainment that is really realistic and it's just like you have to go on stage, you have to give all of yourself, you have to be present your sta on stage and just uh, glow. Well, why I say have a fabulous costume is for this reason. When the <laughs> spotlight hits you and the curtain opens, mm -hmm. that first 30 seconds is how they are going to judge you. Yeah. All right? And, you know, cabaret dancing is like a fashion show. Mm -hmm. Okay? Instead of putting it on, we just take it off. That's the difference. <laughs> yeah. um, if you don't win them within the first 30 seconds, it doesn't matter what you do. Because a naked body is a naked body. Yeah. No what it's signs, no matter what. We all know what it looks like, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and so, but if you don't get their attention mm -hmm. immediately, mm -hmm. all right? It's uh, it's like my comedy character Bert. I don't know if you've ever seen me do Bert. You know, and, uh, you know, I uh, I make him so absurd that you laugh. You know, and I wear an old pair of coveralls and a flannel shirt and you know, push a broom, and uh, people go pay attention right away. That's how you get their attention. Yeah, and especially in burlesque when there's like you know ten acts. How do you make yourself different from the other nine people? Mm -hmm. You. You make them like you the minute they see you, mm -hmm. and they will forgive anything you do <laughs> after that. See, I love making girls beautiful. I, I, don't ask me where that comes from. You know, from the farm, it certainly didn't come. <laughs> uh, it came from the old movies of the 50s, you yeah. know, with the, with the beautiful production numbers and Technicolor and all of this type of thing. Uh, that was how I dreamt show business should be, and that's how I think it should be now. See, I don't like new burlesque. I have to be very honest about it. Yeah, I was and, very and curious I, about your opinion about that exactly. That wanted to be my next question. So let me know what do you think about the burlesque scene today? What are your criticisms? What are the things that you like? Uh, what would be your advices? We want to know. All right. I don't... Some of the new burlesque is all right, as long as you entertain me. Mm -hmm. But I do not come to see a freak show. Yeah. Okay? Uh, when you make yourself ugly on stage, I don't want to see ugly. I want you to take me into a pretty place. Mm -hmm. okay? My advice is show the world how wonderful you really are. Don't lower yourself to anyone else's expectation. Mm -hmm. Set yourself above it. You know, the best, the best burlesque stars... Okay, we're people that had an attitude of, I don't care what you think. Yeah. All right? Because you're paying to see me. I sure the hell wouldn't pay to see you. <laughs> but, uh, but young kids today, they don't seem to realize how wonderful they could really be. Yeah. So they cover it with all these strange acts that really the audience doesn't understand, you know, because I'll give you a very good example. Mm -hmm. The average audience, not the burlesque followers, mm -hmm. or the, mm -hmm. the average audience that walks into a burlesque show or a festival today, and they see these neo-burlesque acts, they will never come back again mm -hmm. because their vision of burlesque is beautiful girls and beautiful costumes. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if they're overweight or they're this or they're that. Okay, as long as they present themselves with dignity. Because mm -hmm. okay. when you lower yourself to that point, 
the audience looks at you like you're not worthy. Is there any any burlesque performer that you really love today, or that you that you were really, yeah, impressed by? There are many. Yeah, I couldn't even begin to start listing them. There are many, 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 many that carry on the tradition. I just worked this weekend with Lulu Deville. Yes. Lulu's from Helsinki. Uh, such a class act. I want you to be a lady on stage. Mm -hmm. I want you to be someone desirable, okay? I want you to be someone that I would really like to meet. If you don't give me that, then I have no interest in you. So we have come to the end of this interview and we thank you for this interview and for sharing insights of your life with us. We, are, we were very, very honored to have you on Alex Radio, on Burlesque on Air. Thank you so, so much and a big kiss to you and to your dog. <laughs> <laughs> and he will like it. And thank you to your listeners. And um, I'm on Facebook. Contact me. Yes, <laughs> great. Big Carol on Facebook. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Love you, you so bye. much. Bye. <laughs> Alex Berlin auf 91.0. Deine Stadt, dein Programm. Oh no, oh no, oh no. And this episode is over as well. I wish this could last forever. I hope you're having fun too. I know that... Um, This is also for a very connoisseur audience, the audience of burlesque, but uh, you have to understand that what we are doing, it's so important to keep this history alive. And there is a very important news that I'm going to be giving you now, is that Burlesque On Air will be sponsoring the Titans of the Tees night at the Burlesque Hall of Fame in Las Vegas, which is the reunion of the burlesque legends. Once per year, they go back on that stage, They do perform as well, or they do a beautiful walk in their beautiful costumes, sometimes still the original costumes from uh, when they were performing back in the days. So we are very, very excited and happy to announce that. Until then, if you have missed the previous episode of Burlesque on Air, don't forget to subscribe our podcast or our SoundCloud channel, and also to give a big like to our Facebook page, Burlesque on Air. To the next month, I'm sending you a huge kiss and uh, dream about burlesque. Mwah.